Welcome everybody to another episode of Lifestyle Medicine. Today we've got Larissa Conte. And Larissa, you are the owner of Wayfinding, correct? That's correct. Beautiful. First of all, so thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited for this conversation. I always love our conversations. I know this one's going to be rich as always. Yeah, likewise. I was excited to get you on here because the the first exposure to your work was at that retreat in uh, Shasta. Mm-hmm. And that one evening, and I was very impressed with <laughs> the efficacy of that, um, what it provides, I think, for something in the culture that's lacking mm. pretty much. So, yeah. Larissa, why don't you give kind of a breakdown what Wayfinding does, what you're doing, and just mm-hmm. the context of everything you're doing so people know what the hell your, uh, your business is yeah, and what you're up okay. to. <laughs> sure. So, um In wayfinding, I focus on several different areas. Um, There are a lot of them, but I can distill it down to doing individual leadership coaching, rites of passage, and systems transformation. Mm -hmm. So primarily work with urban professionals who have big hearts and bright minds and are excited to do the inner work to create outer transformation in their organizations and in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I call together different strands from my own life experience, including the personal energy and health front, relationships and intimacy, my career experience in organizational transformation, um, and then my work as a ceremony designer and rites of passage guide to help people understand how transformation on the inner level is what generates transformation on the external level. Because after so many years of um, working at other firms and creating culture plans or transformation efforts that are focusing on how we work together externally, realizing, oh, our egos are still there, our, our limiting beliefs are still there, Um, our grief is still there. The ways we act smaller still there. So if we're just adopting a new practice, but we still have that inner architecture, it's not true, um, true pivoting in how we're showing up. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. There's just a lot there. So backpedaling just a little bit when you said, um, there was a word you said, I think you said systems designer. Mm -hmm. So for the people that don't know what that means. Can yeah. you clarify what that means? And then from there, I want to ask you some questions. But yeah, there was, yeah, that, that one in particular, I was thinking we might want to jump on that. Sure. So um, I think in fractals and patterns and systems, I have an academic background as um, an environmental systems designer. I have training in permaculture design, which is... Um, living systems design um, that is generative of food and shelter materials and ecological biodiversity. As an athlete and also having healed from a near-fatal accident, spent a lot of time understanding the design of my own individual being, my physical, energetic, spiritual systems, and the patterns that I create in my own life. And then working with teams and organizations those are complex living systems too. Correct. And I've seen that they all operate with the same principles of what, what um, creates aliveness 
-hmm. and what inhibits aliveness, but the language and the mechanisms of intervention are slightly different in the different forums because the actors that we're working with, you know, if I'm talking about like my spleen and my kidneys, that's different than the marketing department and the sales department For is sure. different than um, a forest and the riparian area. Mm -hmm. But they're all um, similar patterns at play. Well, that definitely helps. So thank you for that. That gives <laughs> sure. that gives a context to that definition. So the piece the piece that I think that struck me about your work that I think, at least for me, I think the work that you're talking about is incredibly relevant. And I think all the stuff that you mentioned, um, the grief work, the the old operating systems we have inside that if we move forward into new terrain in life, we need to update them. Essentially, we need to move we need to move what's happening inside of us. But a lot of times it seems like Nowadays, these concepts will kind of be, I don't want to say exclusive to like the new age airy fairy group, but it will kind of be removed from the business scene where this could be incredibly relevant, right? Where this could be um, real time helpful for a lot of different people. And so with your work, that's what struck me. I was like, you've taken this thing, this emotional intelligence kind of thing that's usually in the alternative health medicine scene, and it's fully into the corporate scene people in suits, people making tons of money. And not only are you having effect, it's shifting the dynamics in these places. So that's incredibly cool to me because I always, I think that's, mm. I think what I liked about what you were doing is on some level, you know, I'm always attempting with Chinese medicine to make it not as esoteric because it can get pretty deep that way. And like, how do you distill it down to simple bites that the culture can actually grip onto without feeling mm -hmm alienated from it or completely disconnected from it. So when you tell me how you got into this a little bit, like how did you go from life experiences mm. to I'm going to plug into some corporate scenes and start helping people <laughs> at the corporate level. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. little bit I would like to know. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, I lost the last couple of words for you. So if you can repeat that one more time. Oh, sure. That'd be great. Sure. We had our first little freeze on, on Skype, did we? <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I had said, um, the last little thing I said was, you know, how did you make that leap from life experience? Mm. These things that you've picked up mm -hmm. in life, right? All of, we all pick up skills okay. and trades and <clears throat> different little things along the way. But how did you leap from that to, I'm going to jump into corporate and, or, yeah or fall into corporate and start helping people at that level in that way. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm going to give you the medium version on this. Um, <laughs> so in my undergrad, I studied interdisciplinary environmental systems and science. And I became aware of how our beliefs about where humans are located in the living system really affect and we are currently living in the consequence of those beliefs. So there, in um, Western culture, there was the emergence and unfolding of this belief that humans are separate from nature. So mm -hmm. separate and better or separate and worse, which was, you know, the positioning in early environmentalism, like humans as a plague. Mm -hmm. But I became really curious around what does connection look like? <clears throat> and at the same time that I had that curiosity, my dad died. Mm -hmm. So I was a senior in college and my dad died and this, this will, uh, this will get to the corporate world and yeah. also weaves in yeah, grief. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I had this moment where, 
um, I'm talking to my mom on the phone. My dad had been in a coma and my mom and my uncle sitting together tell me that my dad is going to die sometime in the next 48 hours. And it happens to be on a Monday at lunchtime at the busiest place on Stanford campus. And I drop to the ground and I start wailing. And there are hundreds of human beings yeah. passing by me. And no one stops. No one comes over. And I look up, and I have this kind of out-of-body experience where there's the me who's face-planted into the pavement, learning what wailing is in an embodied way in that moment, and knowing it is so different than crying while I see the bodies swirl around me. And I look up, and I see a professor who I'd done a one-on-one -on -one directed reading with for 10 weeks. And she looks at me while I'm wailing and then keeps having her conversation. And I was like, I was, I... I was Ugh. simultaneously grieving and just shattered with this knowledge that our culture, and when I say all our culture, I mean modern American culture, yeah. has no idea how to deal with grief. And that realization continued to unfold in the months and years after my dad's death, and then as I navigated my own near-fatal accident and eight-year healing, and really recognizing the discomfort, the avoidance, the illiteracy, the emotional atrophying for people to be able to be with emotions like grief. And I chose to go into the corporate world um, because when I was bedridden after my own near-fatal accident, I had been deeply um, involved in the educational world. Um, classroom education, outdoor education, experiential education, and I realized if we're gonna if we're gonna shift how we treat the world, that needs to involve those who hold the most power, and um, businesses hold a tremendous amount of power and impact, and they're also much more agile than nation states. Yeah. Um, so I figured, okay. Let's go into business. So I, I personally yeah. pivoted into business and I started to see the, um, the, the beliefs that governed the functioning of these systems and the ways that it, they, they were bringing out the creativity um, and aliveness and the ways that they were, they were um, inhibiting the creativity and aliveness of the people there. And I love working in the business world so much. And I'm so inspired by all of my clients and colleagues who just have huge hearts and want to create change through the business world. Because as adults, we spend, you know, the vast majority of our waking hours at work. So true. Yep. And so there are these, these incredible living laboratories where we get to experience um shifts and implement shifts that are also being asked for in society as we're pushing on the edges and seeing where can we go as a collective. So that's how I shifted into corporate. And that's also how grief ties in because the separation between work and personal life has been massively blurring in the last decade and in particular the last couple of years. Yeah. And in a time in history <clears throat> where we all... Um, where we're all really being asked to witness 
the true extent of what is going on ecologically, what is going on socially, the um, injustices that exist across all scales, what we are choosing to do to our health, um, and how to be with that is something that is not often held. And we don't usually have permission. And so then we resort to distraction or denial or avoidance. But as you know, through Qigong and Chinese Mm -hmm. medicine, when we don't make space for those feelings, we start to have ramifications in our physical, emotional beings and in our relationships, you know, and at worst, we can start to have serious health problems. So absolutely, it's basically one big, fun, interconnected healing adventure. <laughs> to say the least, good God. It's, um, well, there's a couple of things that come to mind that's really interesting as you're, as you're talking because um, there are, I'm of the mind that there are, lots of, there are lots of different ways at the top of the mountain and most of them aren't wrong. And absolutely, we can all get up there doing our thing, walking through life. But I find something really interesting about this work because I think it, for one, like I said, I wanted to interview because it relates to my experience too. You know, the the, the big yeah. movement nowadays, right, with um, entrepreneurs, businesses, corporations, there's a big push for peak performance. There's a lot of the, the Tim Ferrisses and mm-hmm. it's amazing work. And I think another way to to get to that high performance is a lot of times just processing the garbage that's already inside. It's almost like, the emotional stuff that we carry acts as a stagnation or baggage in our system, in our, in our emotional field. And then when we can actually pluck that out, there's, there's this free coursing of energy. And it's, I mean, I've, I've had that experience with my friends. I've had that experience personally where when I've actually allowed my grief to come through and I don't, I don't contain it. I don't try to, to put any labels on it. I just go through it. It's amazing what happens after there's just this, I mean, a surge of life force, you know, that means everything from sex drive to mental acuity to um, exercise capacity, you know, stamina, physically, emotionally, everything goes up. And I'm like, all I really did was deal with my shit a little bit and maybe not even all of it, you know, but, but there's this huge piece where, you know, there's, there's kind of an external push for let's find the hottest supplement or, you know, um, whatever the thing is on the outside and those things can help. I think tremendously, like they, they really can, but there's this other way that I, or, or if you were to blend these two mm-hmm. things, you know, like process the yeah. emotions and then right. Clean up the health. I mean, you're looking at then really these exponential leaps in performance, but I think it's fascinating that, that you're illustrating this because it's so incredibly important. And like you said, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Americans are illiterate in this, you know, emotionally unintelligent for the most part, or especially with these things that allow us to process the the difficult trials and tribulations of life. So that really Mm -hmm. struck me when you, um, can we jump into that ceremony that we did in in Shasta a little bit? So not recounting everyone's experiences, but um, for the people listening, Larissa, Mm -hmm. I I was teaching at this event, um, shout out to David Beaudry and his uh, medical Qigong program. Larissa is, you guys are still in it. Are you out? Are you graduated? I don't know. No, it was a... um, yeah, it completed last year. So okay. I was in last year's cohort. Okay. So they're out now, but it was this program. How many months was it? Was, a, was it a year? Eight months? Six months. Yeah, six, six months, months with yeah. a break, right? So yep. Larissa, I was teaching um, some Chinese medical information, and I was there for like a three-hour lecture. Larissa was one of the attendees. 
and she's one of David's students. And, she, and you said that you're going to do this grief ceremony in the evening. You said, we're all going to do this grief ceremony. And I was intrigued because I've my relationship with grief. Uh, like you, I lost my dad young. I was 19 yeah. in college. Um, yeah. Same thing. Got a phone call. I was alone. Thank God. But yeah, it, it was a, it was earth shattering. You know, it crushed me and I, I lost my shit on the spot. And, but when you brought up this, this ceremony, you said, we're going to do this grief ceremony. And I, I was so intrigued. I thought a ceremony around grief. I thought, what the hell is this going to look like for one? And two, I was a little nervous. I thought, well, I've cried a lot about my dad and this stuff, but I kind of knew that was the thing that was going to come up. So from there, can you kind of, um, give the people listening just the general framework of what that ceremony looked like, like how you set it up. And then we can kind of go back and forth with, um, you know, (laughs) the shared experience, but I would like to hear how you explain it to people because you probably have a better memory because you've done it so many times. Yeah. So, um, in that instance, and I'm largely going to call for my general framework that I take for these because I might not be able to recall all the details, Sure. but we were a small group and I was showing up as, um, the facilitator in that moment, as opposed to a participant, um, as part of my contribution to the group experience And um, we began by uh, coming in and sitting in a circle, and I created um, a framing for the experience to talk about the value of grief, um, what it is to be with grief, also the opportunity that comes from honoring grief, because, um, and this is something I want to flag, is like, as it relates to um, sometimes the focus that can happen when we're oriented towards peak performance, this bias towards outer action and the devaluing of our internal like shadowy places, you know, that we yeah. can, we can <clears throat> love and adore the life <clears throat> and able-bodiedness and creativity, but then, um, have a really deep stigma of receptivity, of digestion, of processing, of the gold that lies in feeling the most challenging things within us. So um, created some framing and then held the opening for um, within a certain approximate time container, the opportunity for each individual to share something um, that they wanted to release. How are you doing? Good. I just, uh, my, I was Great. Dr- drinking my drink and went down the wrong yeah. path. So I'm having to <laughs> fix it as we go, but yeah. No, keep going. good. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, yeah. I just wanted to check in. Yeah. Um, I'm not dying. <laughs> Definitely not just dying. Just rambling away over here. <laughs> yeah. I'm dying, Larissa. I'm dying. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm good. Just the wrong pipe. Like, keep Air going. Airway. Airway. <laughs> um, So then creating the opportunity, because what often doesn't happen, and it's a simple, in so many ways, it's a simple formula, and there are particular agreements, because the consequences of not having effective cultural spaces for processing grief are that we often don't know how to be with our own grief or other people's grief. So one of the principles is to witness. We are not here to respond. I can have feelings about your grief. 
but I'm not going to speak to your grief in this moment because if we don't actually let each other grieve, right. And if, and if I have to, if I have to, if I start piggybacking on your grief and being like, Oh, my dad, my dad died too. And like, (laughs) or like, I know someone whose dad died and it's like, no, we have to give each aspect of our grieving it's space to breathe yeah that's one of the main tenets which requires us as listeners as friends as supporters to be in full witnessing and presence which also requires us to potentially be with great discomfort yes quite a quite a bit of discomfort and that was that was something i liked about this i mean i I come from a martial arts background. Part of martial arts is eating bitter, right? Chinese culture mm-hmm. is very much old school. Eat bitter. Hold horse stance until you puke. And mm-hmm. then maybe you'll learn something after 10 years of doing that. You know, there's a lot of that. And there's tremendous merit in that. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain amount with pain, I would say, and grief that I've realized the eating bitter, that sitting with the really uncomfortable stuff, yields this tremendous outlet of energy that comes through. But... Yes, witnessing it was very difficult. I mean, it always is when someone's in pain, which is Mm -hmm. just kind of a mind fuck to me that even more so that you were breaking down in the center of the quad and right, Mm. no one's paying attention. That's even, it's that kind of thing. It's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to the point where we don't touch it. It's so uncomfortable that I can't put my hands on it. I can't give anything to it because I'm I'm just not equipped. You know, I'm not able to, to jump forward. And when people were going through their things, you know, um, I shared a thread with you because both of mm-hmm. our, we both talked about, I can't remember if you shared, but I remember you telling me about it and mm-hmm. then I, we both had the, the loss of a, of a father and then other people had completely different things. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes they weren't about death. It was being, you know, not accepted in their family because of sexual orientation or some other thing. And I just thought, oh my God, I, I remember thinking there's so much pain that each of us go through and that we don't. Mm-hmm. realize how much pain each person is actually carrying for mm-hmm. very for various different things and it, it was incredibly uncomfortable but i was so inspired to see everybody go through their thing cry in front of everybody else because i'm pretty sure there's no one that went through that without crying to some degree everyone mm. had something that was mm. if people didn't break down crying they cracked you know tears mm-hmm. came up voices quivered and it was um but I thought, God, man, this is so good. For one, everyone was closer by the end. You know, I felt like everyone was a little yeah. closer, a little more compassionate of the group. And I think the exteriors of people that you see, you know, you think, oh, there's the the big tough guy who's like breaking down and crying. You're like, God, it doesn't matter who they are, what they look like. They've got something there that hurts. You know, that's really yeah. that's really difficult. So when you've when you've done this, Larissa, um, that experience was amazing because mm. it, it, I thought. I can always cry for my dad. Like it was one of those things where I thought, you know, I have my yearly ritual that I do for him. That's every April 27th at 8.06 AM. Mm. That's when he died. Mm. So I I do it every year. I set up my whole station and I take about an hour. I play his song and I cry and I drink whiskey, his favorite whiskey. Mm -hmm. I have my thing, but I'm always looking for that's I I so look forward to that ritual because it's my one time year to check in and cry with him and and to do my Mm -hmm. business with him. And then I thought, well, here's another opportunity, you know, here's another way to kind of get that, that, that reboost um, yeah. <laughs> at a different time of year in a different context. And, yeah. it, and it was very much that way. So when you've done this with, um, when you take this process, um, how do you, how do you, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you explain it, but how do you bridge it into the corporate world? Um, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, you know, we were at a retreat center. We were at a, mm-hmm. a place that was like in the mountains, at least externally, that's a place where I think, okay, we're in nature, we're, we're on a retreat, uh, deals with mind-body connection. It's almost easier in a sense, but how do you bring this type of thing into the corporate boardroom and does it look different and do you reframe it but is it you know talk about that process like what's that look like in real time in a corporate building or a corporate sure or do you take people out what do you do sure um the setting can um can vary and can be impactful but you can through the framing that i create which um is what guides people's consciousness and their awareness and the permission that we give each other, then setting in certain ways almost fades Mm -hmm. because this is such a highly emotional and energetic experience. So as long as we create um, the field, and when I say field, I mean the emotional and energetic feeling that's shared enough amongst a group of people, then it's always up to someone's own uh, volition and choosing to, to metaphorically or physically step into the center of the circle and share and be seen. Because one of the things that, that is um, true in a culture that doesn't value grief, you know, sees grief as like, Oh, like, I'm going to pity you. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> I'm not going to touch this. Right. Um, it's fundamentally related to as a shameful territory. And one of my wonderful, wise, grandfatherly figures um, who leads his own type of ceremony work with people gave me the distinction between guilt and shame. That's really mm-hmm. powerful and relates here. So that to feel guilty is to feel bad about something that we've done. Whereas to feel shame is to feel bad about who we are. And mm. the imprisonment of the experience of shame is that we cannot change who we are. So if we equate who we are and how we feel as something that is bad, then all of a sudden we are trapped. Yep. And... Your thank you so much for describing your ritual, you know, yeah. your annual ritual with your dad. It's so sweet. Those moments matter so much. And also having these moments where we get to witness and be witnessed by community weaves relational ropes between each other so that <clears throat> in these moments where we feel as though we are literally emotionally falling, we are caught. Yeah by those around us Mm -hmm. and that I've found it doesn't particularly matter in a certain frame, the depth of relationship we have with those around us when engaging in a ritual like this, they could be someone who you just met that day or someone who's a family member or someone you've worked with for 20 years. Um, It's just the opportunity to be seen. And so in corporate settings, I'll share the anecdote of, um, in 2017, I was presenting at, um, a conference about, um, culture, 
culture at work. It was called Life at Work. It took place in Brooklyn, and there were about 300 attendees ranging from CEOs to heads of HR and um, other executive levels to consultants. And um, in two sessions of each about 75 people, I facilitated a grief ritual and talked about the importance of grieving in these times and what is the place of grief at work? Because right now, the short answer to that is none. Yeah, totally. It's 100% none. <laughs> but that, none at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, uh, next question. Right. Um, but that happened just a couple months after um, the white supremacy march in um, Charlottesville. Mm. And um, because what is deemed professional is starting to become a larger territory than traditionally defined in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, right. 80s, 90s at business <clears throat> schools, <clears throat> right. where leading edge organizations, you know, where teal organizations, which is an evolutionary classification of organizational development, one of the core aspects, in addition to self-management, is wholeness at work. And so grief and our ability to be with our sadness must be part of our experience at work. And how do we how do companies also choose whether it's companies honestly or nonprofits or schools choose to acknowledge what's happening um, in a social realm, choose to what's acknowledge what's happening in their own internal ecosystem. So that can happen through um the case of you don't it doesn't always have to be about death right but i have designed a grief ritual for a company that lost an employee in the Mm. ghost ship fire in oakland oh wow you know so when you're like actually grieving the death of one of your colleagues how do you be with that because otherwise it is energetically in every relational line of all members and there's something that happens um, like vibrationally in an organization when it's not talked about. Yeah. It becomes much like it becomes in the body. It becomes this stuckness and this heaviness. And like in a river, when water has to flow around a boulder, right. you know, it's this large immovable object that is now redirecting flow. Right. That is a very similar analogy to the impact of grief in a system that we have to t- we have to go out of the way to avoid something. But right. then we're also missing an opportunity. So in corporate settings at that conference, you know, I was like, whether it's um, whether you are processing a heartbreak or you're processing a change in your company culture because a merger and acquisition happened and quite frankly, you liked the culture that you had and right. you're afraid about what's to come. Right. Fair enough. Um, even though it might be an amazing possibility, we can't skip that step. <clears throat> as much as we'd like to, like we can't skip the waves, we can't skip the releasing of our waters and when we relate to them as shameful then we hold them but when we relate to them as holy then we let them flow and we realize these waters when we release these waters they nourish 
the seeds of future possibilities because we've created the space in our being and allow our hearts to break. You know, something incredible happens yeah. when we let our hearts break. <clears throat> Absolutely. It's, like, it's so that's huge. That's when the yeah. heart gets bigger. 100%. Yeah. I could not agree yeah. more. You know, yeah. again, this is why I wanted you on here. I was like, we got to talk about this, Larissa. Yeah. We got to dive into this. <laughs> yeah. So I actually want to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, in your grieving experience of your dad and mm -hmm. of all the other griefs yeah. in your life, but that's one that we can focus on. Um, how have you changed as a being through the process of grieving your father over the years again and again? And how has your grief curve changed in that time, if at all? It's an excellent question. Um, and I, I would say I've thought about this maybe in a little bit of a different context, but it's a really good question. I would say how I've changed as a being, how, like me personally, how I've changed mm -hmm. is that there, I would say my capacity to acknowledge gratitude. So I think for me, when I realized my dad had passed, I thought, okay, one of the one of the instrumental biological forces that brought me into the world is now gone. All that's left was my mom. Like half the equation that yeah. brought me in is gone. <clears throat> so there's a certain amount of, of um, your mortality that comes into play very quickly. Like, okay, that could happen to me. I could have been in a car accident. There, there's a real check on life. So I think um, as a being each year, I, I've gotten a little more present with my life because I'm aware that life can, when, when I had that experience, I think it's just that ripple even though the ripples are smaller as I've gotten older, it's mm -hmm. still completely consistent. Um, so I, I think I'm more present. Uh, I don't, you know, I look at my business and I look at my, like, what, what, what I expect from my friends and what I expect from my social circles where I'm like, get the fuck off your phone when we're hanging out. Um, even if you're in the mm -hmm. back seat and we're riding in a car, get off your phone. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's mm -hmm. a certain amount of presence that I expect from people. Um, it doesn't always go well, but you know, but, but I'm, but I'm always wanting it. And I really feel like a lot of it had to do with my dad dying so young. There's a piece yeah. of it where it's like, show up here mm -hmm. with me now, because this could be over. There's a certain amount mm -hmm. of that. So I would say every year that has gotten more and I can be distracted. Don't get me wrong. I'm not the Dalai Lama. I'm not like a perfect meditator, but I'm. You're not? Yeah. <laughs> not yet, right? <laughs> but uh, but I definitely like the presence piece is is, is there every year. Uh, um, and I feel I feel like I feel deeper, you know, with, with each, each passing year, that ritual when I do it. Um, every year I'm amazed. The, the, the depth of the sorrow is always the same. It doesn't really go away. I just open the door. I'm like, it's always there. That's really nice to know that that this wound is never something that I just get over. It's something I integrate. Mm -hmm. So that is a template and metaphor for a, lar a larger piece of my life where I think the bad things that happen, it's nothing that I'm going to get over. I integrate it. And part of the integration is a continual metronome of a yearly cycle, right? There's a, there's a ritual. There's a rhythm that, to that that comes in. Um, and then to a answer the second part of your question, you said... Um, how has my grief curve changed, right? Was that the, the second piece? I would say the grief curve, like I said, the pain is always there. Um, but what I would say is just like working a muscle, I am able to grieve and let go and not have it be as, I basically I can drop into the grief state, fully dump everything I've got and cry my heart out and my eyes out and just like talk to my dad out loud and just like, dad, where the fuck are you? I wish I could talk to you about martial arts. I wish you could see my daughter, blah, blah, blah. 
cry. And then as that hour wraps up, I'm like, so now what? Like, it's kind of a, like I'm able to, like the muscle doesn't get as sore. You know, if like you haven't worked out in a long time and you work out, you're sore for four or five days. Mm-hmm. Now when I cry and I do my thing, it's like as soon as that door closes, I'm like, oh, I feel good. And I'm like, the response is so much quicker now for me to bounce back. I'm more resilient. It's like a toned muscle. Mm-hmm. So that feels really good because when rough things happen, I'm like, okay, I've learned this. If I can just be with this, cry about it, deal with it right now, even if it doesn't look so great to other people, I'm better for it. I'm, I'm faster. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a more adaptable organism as a result mm-hmm. of allowing myself to hit the grief. This came up with, um, mm-hmm. just to flush this out with my, with my daughter. <clears throat> my daughter was in the hospital for a month, mm. a month straight when she was about six months old to seven months old. Our first Christmas was at Stanford Hospital. Oh, wow. She's doing great now. She's doing amazing. Um, luckily, it was nothing, you know, underlying, life-threatening anything. Um, but when she was in the hospital for that month, I remember, I mean, my wife and I were just losing it. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing mm-hmm. worse than having your, your baby in that kind of setting. And I had these periods where I would just break down, you know, and I, I would just cry and I would, I would show it. And my mom, God love her, who's like emotionally intelligent. She's like, great, you have to keep it together for your wife. And I'm like, mom, I am. I was like, but I'm going to allow myself these little interim breakdowns because if I don't, it's way worse in the long run. So my mom was, my mom was, you know, and she was like, I get that. You know, she was just saying, well, you you have to be tough. And I agree. Like I'm still kind of traditional with male roles. Like men should be tough. There's a certain amount of that, that I like in men that I like in my friends of like disciplining your emotions and like putting things down for a minute, but eventually dealing with them. But you know, in that moment I thought, God, if I don't deal with this grief, like this pain right now and let it course, like it's going to be, I'm going to be snappier with my wife. I'm going to be you know, I'm going to be like way more defensive towards these doctors. I'm going to, I'm not going to be helpful in the larger mm-hmm. context if I don't allow myself to feel it. But I think it's just the opposite for a lot of people. Mm. And they're, they're afraid to feel the pain and the grief and admit that they're in a lot of pain about something. Mm-hmm. And that if they do, they'll be seen as weak. And there's that shame and all this other stuff that you talked mm-hmm. about. So it's a really, it's a really good question, you know, but it's helped me. I mean, I'm, I'm way better for it in in the long mm-hmm. run it's and it would you say you've seen the same type of thing or, or similar threads with the people that you talk to yeah i'm gonna get to that in a second thank yeah. you so much for all of that yeah you're welcome <laughs> so you're welcome. beautiful i um yeah there are a couple things so one thing i want to um like a couple things i want to mirror uh for our wonderful listeners is one of the amazing gifts of grief is the incredible value of presence and gratitude. Yep. Nothing eradicates entitlement like grief. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. That's oh, very I, true. Oh, I don't have to pay attention now. I'm going to have a million more of these moments. Are you? <laughs> right. So then who must we be? if we don't take for granted the amount of time we get to have with each other, with life, with ourselves. Because Mm -hmm. when something becomes um, habitual or something becomes normalized, 
we can stop paying attention and intimacy and and like the richness of life is in presence yeah yeah and is in <clears throat> wonder and is in curiosity and so um a dear friend of mine gabe wilson shared with me this zen quote that not knowing is most intimate Ooh, not knowing is most intimate Yes, and we can often grieve because we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know what lies ahead and we lost what was. And it's like, that is, um, that's like the refreshing, like, rainfall on us. In so many ways, grief, this is another thing I often talk about in the beginning of, of grief ceremonies that I do. The ways in which grief is like water, Mm-hmm. When we dam a river, so ecologically, when we dam a river, rivers through their momentum carry silt and sediment and rocks and even boulders, depending on the velocity of the river. But yeah. when we stop a river, it loses its momentum and then that sediment begins to fall out. And dams have finite lives because sedimentation grows and grows and grows until you've reached the top of the dam. Right. That is, and there's compact <clears throat> from the weight of that sediment and it becomes rock and it becomes this even more hardened barrier in the river. That is precisely what is happening in our internal energetic being. When there is a grief presence, a grief impulse, and we dam it. Yes. And what you were saying, and this is so interesting about the stories we tell about what it means to be a certain gender and have a relationship mm-hmm. to grief yeah. and who's allowed to feel grief <clears throat> and who's right. not allowed to feel grief and yep. what is strong and what is weak. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life people have told me I'm strong mm-hmm. because I am sobbing in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and that um, I've found that one of the reasons that we're actually afraid to grieve is like we feel like we might die. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a death. Yeah, it's a mini death yeah. that you're going yeah, through. It's, it's right. absolutely a mini death. And it's like something is dying. And this is a feeling I'm very habituated to through my rites of passage work. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing rites of passage for 12 years, 12, 13 years now. And the shedding, the act of shedding is a releasing. It is a surrender because we don't know what's going to come. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Again, it's like, oh, God, I'm surrendering to the mystery. Yeah, here we go again. Right. (laughs) More habituated to like, I know what I'm going to do. Like yeah. that, this is, we are, we are imprinted with the valuation of knowing, of initiative, of, of <clears> movement, <throat> of right. fixed form, you know, all these yang attributes. Yep. And again, it's like the teaching of the yin because through the yin, so that dam, I've found where that dam exists, even though in Chinese medicine and medical Qigong, um, learning that grief is the acquired nature um, and sadness is the acquired nature of the lungs and that grief yep. can accumulate in the lungs. That yep. where it really affects us is we damn the heart. Yeah. 
right? That's the, the dam the, is not over the lungs. The dam becomes a shield over the heart. Right. And can I tell a quick story? Yes. About- no, because I and, and I want to bookmark this. Yeah. So as you go into your story, okay, and bookmark yeah. this. Just remember, okay. I got to tell you the story about my grandpa. So just, but we'll bookmark grandpa. You come go back you, to grandpa. Come back to grandpa. Awesome. You go with your story because there's something okay. very relevant that you have to share. And yeah. I think I do too. Yeah. <clears throat> so last year I worked with a young couple, just like beautiful young couple. Um, they had twins, five month old twins, a boy and a girl. And in the middle of the night, the boy died suddenly. Oof. Like the, and, the SIDS, right? Like the, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, oh, God. and, um, one of my very dear friends and clients was, it was coworkers with the wife and, uh, he referred them to me and in working with this couple, one of the things, because I understand so much through having, followed my own grief curve with my dad which is very similar to yours in when you said it doesn't go away yeah it's just like how much of one's existence does it take up yeah correct and um and then i was like i was like the door is going to be open for a long time basically i found year one Mm -hmm. is just because it's the first of everything. Right. It's the right. first of the entire right. cycle. It's the first of all the landmarks that we orient around. That it's like every time, whether it's the birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, it's it's feeling <clears throat> the particular absence of that person in our life in that moment. And so um, I was like, but if you if you're conscious and you stay with it through time, it doesn't have to take you over um, and and um, like harden you. If you're able to be present with that discomfort. And so I went through somatic exercises with them of locating where in their bodies their grief lived. Mm-hmm. And for the husband, his <clears throat> grief is in my heart and I know old men who are hard hearted and I'm terrified of becoming that because I've been lying awake at night seeing how easy it could be for me to become that. Yeah. And he's like, I have a partial shield forming and it's not all the way there but it scares me. And I was like, so then how do you give yourself permission to be with that and to be with your grief and also be with your love? Because one of the, when people are like, well, why doesn't the grief go away? It's because the grief is our reflection of how much we love. Yeah. That's how much you love your dad. Mm -hmm. That's how much I love my dad. Absolutely. That this is how much I love the earth. This is how much I love other people. That their suffering or their loss or their pain moves me because I love them. And so in that way, it's an honoring. And it makes me bigger. 
Yeah. Yeah. Makes me bigger. There's a natural expansion that happens um, easily, I think, when when we engage it this way. And I think, I don't know if this is true for for your grief rituals or if you've seen this type of thing, but when I work with my clients, a lot of times, and we're not just talking about grief, when we're talking about emotions, one of the things that I, I kind of pull from Chinese medicine, they look at the five elements as these non-self-aware personalities, which you've heard me talk about. Mm-hmm. And that that thread of looking at your emotions like a personality, they are a personality, right? So anger is a personality, grief is a personality, joy is a personality. And when you personalize something and you make it, in a sense, just metaphorically, you make it an entity. Anything that is conscious and that is that is an entity, right, that is a being, is going to need attention at some point in its mm-hmm. in its existence <clears throat> so what i've seen with with people i work with and and the way i think about my own grief is i've treated my grief i've realized over the years as a personality that mm-hmm. grief is a is a personality that i embrace and that i i realize if i were to put any person you know putting baby in the corny in the corner <laughs> yeah you know if you if you do that with your grief and you're like i'm just going to put this personality in the corner and i'm not going to look at it i'm not going to talk to it and every time i walk by it i'm going to ignore it and just turn a blind eye i thought what is that going to turn into what kind of person would that become and i think that's one of the ways that i've started to understand why we have to we have to look at these things because they're a part of us right they come out of our personality it's an extension of us and if yeah, I think that's it's really helped me because I'm like I always think when grief comes in are these really difficult experiences, really horrible things that come into my life that I don't like, even if they're small, even if they're large, I I, I sort of run to it and I say, mm-hmm. give me a hug, and this is gonna suck and this is gonna hurt, mm-hmm. but I would rather give you attention right now and process these very difficult things now. Or, or, yeah. or at least begin the process, right? I mean, it doesn't happen yeah. in one fell, um, one fell swoop. And the piece that I wanted to just, um, is your story, was that complete with that piece? Because I wanted to share the grandpa piece, but if you're not done, keep going. Yeah, the only addition was yeah. that through the time of, of having space, even just over four weeks, uh-huh. like four one-hour sessions, oh, right. to see the changes in both the husband and their wife, and they were like, Wow, compared to all the other couples at our grief counseling group, like we're doing great. Wow. Like that does not mean this is easy or we <clears> like <throat> it at all, but we are doing like thank you. And that the husband was like it's 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 going away. And I know it doesn't have to be there. And using that water uh the the river analogy, right? You move it's yeah. you're you're moving some of the boulders. So there's a, right. there's a free flow. It doesn't mean that the the pain isn't there, but it's it's moving, right? It's circulating. Um, oh, that's so that's awesome that you work with them. God, yeah. Re- rewarding work, you know, difficult Profoundly. and sad. Yeah, sad of course, Profoundly. but really rewarding. The piece I wanted to to mirror back to you was about my grandpa. My yes. so my dad died at 51, car accident, and mm-hmm. he was 44 before his parents told him that they loved him. So he only got six, seven years, give or take, of, of you know, saying, I love you. Yeah. They, all, they cared for him in ways and encouraged him to do things and go to college and, you know, do this stuff. They grew up very poor, but he never heard it. Like, I love you, son. You know, yeah. you're, you're great. I love you. So my dad had told me this. I remember when he was, 
I remember when this happened he, when he when I was younger and he was 44 my grandpa who was a very um, closed off emotional man you know very <clears throat> had just covered up his heart you could just tell hadn't to not tell your son that you love him <laughs> yeah is sort of a testament testament to that <clears throat> excuse me and he he had a heart attack and a heart attack mm-hmm. and then um he ended up having a stroke later but the heart attack is what did it and what what i realized was i mean i, I remember he had a heart attack he had to have open heart surgery they cut him open and i forget where he might i think he was in oakland maybe um this was so many years ago i can't remember but they cut him open and i as a kid this is like one of the most visceral experiences i had because when they cut him open um and, and they came in and we saw him in the surgery room. He had this huge gnarly, you know, they had cracked his sternum. First of all, the smell. The smell that was not from the equipment. The smell that you could smell that was had come out of his body mm-hmm. <clears throat> was, I just remember thinking like, whatever was inside of him had mm. was festering. You could tell that his tissues like didn't smell right. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Ever since I swallowed wrong yeah. it's been, it been in my throat um so he that smell stayed with me though because it smelled it, it just smelled like this is kind of gross but it's it's the way it's a way you can paint a yeah. picture so if like like i floss routinely but if you don't mm-hmm. floss for days on end there's a certain smell that plaque will get and mm-hmm. it was like that taken out by a factor of 25 it was just mm-hmm. like what the hell like you could literally arterial plaque Mm-hmm. And I remember going in there. I thought, "Oh my God, this smells terrible!" And my grandpa was just crying. He saw my dad, and he like he just started crying, and he just broke down, and he couldn't stop. And he mm-hmm. was just a basket case. And my dad was like, "What's what's wrong?" And he's like, "He's like, I love you, you know, I love you." And, and I remember being like, and my dad, of course, started to cry. And then yeah. my dad told me, he's like, "That's the first time he's told me that he loved me." And he's yeah. like, "Why now?" And I said, "Dad, I think his heart was just had filled up. Like I think he was just, I think he just." he gave out. And so the, the heart attack softened him tremendously. It also made him considerably weaker, right? His legs got very skinny. Um, mm. He had a lot less energy and he could not control. A man who never cried was, was a basket case from that point forward for the rest of his life. He couldn't, every time he'd see me or give me a hug, hello or goodbye, he would cry. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge makeup of lost time you could see. And the very thing that that I think like men deep down fear that they'll become a basket case, even for a short period. I thought, here's a man who can't even control it now. Now mm-hmm. the floodgates are open. The heart is damaged, you know, mm-hmm. energetically and, and physically. And he cannot contain this thing. And he would just cry mm-hmm. and cry. And then he ended up having another heart attack and the same thing. It just got that much um, more emotionally open. And I thought, good God, this is so strange. But looking back on it now, especially in the context of Chinese medicine, given that they say the organs store emotions. I thought, mm-hmm. I thought this, is, this is a testament to why we need to move our emotions, you know, why we have to circulate them, why we have to move them, why we have to, to deal with them. And this tied to the, to the last piece, and then I want to go back to you, which was my, mm-hmm. my, my first martial art instructor, um, Chuck Duran, who I really want to get on the podcast here at some point. <laughs> but he, um, so when my dad died, touching on the grief piece, I found out in my dorm midday, looked in the mirror and the face I had when I found out was like someone I didn't know. I was like, who is this kid looking in the mirror? Cried, but then it shut off. It was just this immediate, um, 
I stopped. I went numb. And I was like, I can't, why am I not crying anymore? This is so weird. <clears throat> and I did cry for another, oh, until the following Thursday when I eulogized him at his celebration of life. I cried that night mm-hmm. um, for like 30 minutes. And then from that point forward, 19 to 21, I didn't cry at all. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. zero. And at 21, I got into my first real, actual, long-term, like, relationship. And mm-hmm. I started to have, um, at 21, I was having, like, sexual performance issues. At 21. And I was fit, healthy. I went to a neurologist. I went to, um, you know, I went to a, a, a urologist. I went to a hypnotist. I went to everybody. And the doctors were like, you're fine. It's like, they're like, it's in... It's in this head, not that one, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's it literally, in, it's in your mind. There's something physically you're fine. And mm-hmm. so, but regardless, it was causing serious problems in my relationship. And I was mm-hmm. super depressed, feeling just God awful about myself. And uh, my instructor, who was a, a martial arts guy, and he was always talking about breath and energy. And at that time, I thought, mm-hmm. uh-huh, breath and energy, like what, what, whatever. I'm interested in the, the martial art piece. But I asked him, I said, can you help me? And mm-hmm. I said, this is what I'm struggling with. And he said, yeah, I think I can. He treated me and he basically found a spot in my hip. He did this thing where he kind of put his hand over my body. He found a spot in my left hip. And when he pressed down on it, I just got very, un- he didn't even push that hard. Mm-hmm. But I said, that is incredibly uncomfortable. And he's like, what's it feel like? And I said, I don't know, but I don't like it. Like, I'm, this is very uncomfortable. But it wasn't physical pain. It just made me uncomfortable. And he said, well, I'm not going to let go. And then he pushed in pretty hard. And then I just lost it. And I mean, like you said, wailing, mm-hmm. not crying, wailing. <clears throat> he covered me up, turned the lights down. He let me cry there for about an hour plus. And I just, mm-hmm. he went into his office. He left me in the, the dojo, you know, mm-hmm. cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And then he came out and he just very gently talked to me and he said, look, he said, I understand, you know, you lost your dad. And this is the part that mirrored when you said that he said, you're not any less of a man for crying for your dad. He said, you're more of one. He said, don't ever think that you can go through life and not let this pain in. He says, he says, you leave that untouched for 30, 40 years. He said, that's, he says, he says, that's, that's cancer. Like that, that can turn into some very bad things in your body. Uh He said, so don't, don't do that. He said, it it's, there's a lot more fortitude and resiliency and bravery in confronting it. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, he's like, you're, you're not unbreakable. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one gets out alive. It's, it's a, sh- you know, we're all going to go. So, so be with that. Your dad's gone and you need to, do it. so I spent the next how many months just crying and learning that. <clears throat> and that night, you know, went back to my girlfriend and for the first time in six months, everything was back to normal. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, holy shit, because I thought, I mean, we were both floored. Like what? She's mm-hmm. like, did you take a pill? And I said, no, I cried. I mean, I fucking cried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, and I, that's, I would say that instance is what kind of got me on the alternative medicine thing was that. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. What, that's what opened mm-hmm. up the door. So mm-hmm. all these threads, <clears throat> as you're talking about it, brings me back to, to this thing that you're talking about. It's, it's so mind boggling to me that you're doing this work. Mm-hmm. For one, it's so needed. You're doing mm-hmm. it in the corporate setting and you're seeing shifts in people. And if you can get this into that level of, mm-hmm. of society, like you said, there's some real actual change here that's really important. People, mm-hmm. people need it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Man, so much in there, you know? Yeah, there so is. So much in there. 
Yeah, I have many um, paths I could take from here, and I, I love how much I can feel my heart in this conversation, you know, and I can feel like the waters in me yeah. as we're talking about this. Yeah. Um. And so I, I'm kind of just, yeah. This is one thing that wants to come forward. So when we have, um, one of the great. Grief is one of my greatest teachers. And and grief is not, for people listening, grief is not all I focus on in my work at all. It is one of the parts of the larger ecosystem of aliveness and power and connection and creative mm. possibility that I focus on. And it is a necessary part. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> one of the things I've learned over the years mm. is that when when I have the impulse to push something away, as you're talking about, when there's that yeah. part inside that we're like, oh, I don't want to look at you. Yep. Um, we are fragmenting ourselves when we do that. We are shaming ourselves and acting as though there, there's something inside of us that is an untouchable in like a, in in the most stigmatized shameful way yep you are worthless yeah is the equated um transmission that happens in that but when instead we become curious about the value and we become curious about well like why do i god i why do i want to shield from this and then we hear like oh maybe because i've been told that people who live like are alive in a body that looks like mine aren't supposed to cry because it makes me less strong and mm -hmm. and that I want to be strong so that I'm respected but you'll only be respected if you don't and I might be called a sissy if I'm crying sure then and that that, but that's actually creating some sort of poisoning in me and then remembering being a young person and being stigmatized and starting, it helps us start to track. So I'm a, also a trained tracker, a wildlife tracker and um, much more highly skilled in tracking human beings. <laughs> <laughs> I spend a lot of my time tracking humans. <clears throat> um, when we start to become curious, then we begin mapping the connective tissue in our systems and our beliefs that allow the flow or create obstruction for flow. And, and so instead of dreading and clenching and tightening and pushing away, if we can instead be with it. And one of the ways that I invite people is how to both be the riverbed and the river. How can you be the vessel that lets the movement pass th pass by, pass through, and how can you also be the flow of it mm -hmm. at the same time? Because we there can be a fear that if I go into my grief, I'm going to get carried away. That's it for most people, I think. That's yeah. That's the big terror. And it's another one of that's <clears> the <throat> that's this like water essence to yeah. grief there is often um i have found just as a pattern there's this subconscious 
belief that if I truly open up to the full magnitude of my grief, I'm going to drown. Yep. Which is I will be over, like, I will be submerged in water. And it's an amazing thing because I have not seen any recorded cases of someone dying from opening up to their feeling. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and yet we need to find these ways to feel steady so that we won't be swept away. And how do we create the practices? You know, it's, it can be daunting if you're not in, if you have atrophied relationship to allowing mm -hmm. your sadness, or if you haven't cried in a long time, how do you even give yourself permission to feel? And what are the spaces? And to begin to open, to begin to create space, to begin to share with people around yourself. Um, and some of the indicators for me, I can, I feel at this point in my life, I feel grief come in like a storm. I mm. so relate to it like water. It's like, I can almost see the clouds forming on the horizon, right. like moving toward me. And depending on where I am in my life, you know, I know I can't run from the storm. <laughs> right. I know it's possible to try, but like you can give it a shot, right? Be there. Yeah, right. exactly. And so, um, at this point, I'll just be like, okay. And the storm, when it arrives, I usually when I start grieving for any reason, it just pulls on all of the threads of grief connected to my consciousness. Mm -hmm. How we treat each other, how I diminish myself, like the things that I've said that I regret, how we're treating the earth, how we subjugate each other, how we disempower each other, the use of hate, the use of force, the use of brutality, poisoning each other. It just, it, it becomes a torrent. And it's like yeah. all of those droplets are simultaneously in my consciousness and I just let them flow. And that happens to me now in my life on a pretty regular, it happens a couple times a year. And I don't, create space in my life for yeah for personally for grief rituals anymore because mm -hmm. i'm like oh it it just comes now it's like it's not like i'm grieving it's like <laughs> the grief is doing me yeah 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 <laughs> and at the end it's similar to the arc of a storm cycle where it's like mm -hmm. raining and raining and raining and raining and drizzling and then the clouds are gone yeah slow and dispersion. yeah and I've, at the end of that, I usually <clears throat> feel like a wrung out sponge. And I yeah. have, and when like the breath yeah. comes with that is a freshness and an exhaustion and a softness and an openness, which usually then creates in not that long after that, this like flourishing in my life. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, it's it, <laughs> it literally is the best. And so <clears throat> one of the one of my advocacy points too is to look at the language of how we talk about grief and sadness yeah. all of our language around it is stigmatizing mm -hmm. you know instead of celebrating it instead of um and and that i uh there's part of me that can has now gotten to the point where i can enjoy a grief process for myself when i'm like deep in it um but I certainly have more habituated response at the end to be like, 
own I'm fully appreciative of it yeah. you know and know the importance of making space for it but that we um to just look at the ways that we hem it in and say you know it's like we talk about it as shit we do well there's not you a re- there's not a reverence or no. or acknowledgement of the necessity of it either there's totally. it's not it's not pushed that way at all. I mean, I don't for sure collectively. I mean, there's good hearted people out there who are doing amazing work like yourself and, and there are some people that are hip to it, but I, yeah, like at a culture, the broad stroke yeah. level, yeah, it's not there. I mean, it's, it's not. And I think this is, this kind of brings me to the next question, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a professional fighter. I'm not, it's not my life path. You know, I haven't gone into this, but I have, yeah. I have studied fighting arts for a good portion of my life in some capacity. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. in there. Don't know why. It's just one of my agreements, you know, this go around. But right. um, so when I study this, right, and, and one of these things that I think is really relevant is <clears throat> there's a piece of, you know, like men, right? Men, there's there's a whole thing about men, especially nowadays, there's a shift. There's there's things happening, right? Things are evolving and changing, but men don't cry, right? Like there, there's that old thing, you know, and mm-hmm. if they do, men are pussies or they're, wiss, they're wussies or they're mm-hmm. wimps or mm-hmm. whatever. And at the same time, like I part of that's bullshit. And I'm like, and at the same time in warrior culture, that was relevant. Sometimes if you're on the battlefield, you can't be going into a grief ritual because things are going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. There's a time when you have to open that door, when you have to close mm-hmm. it so that you can be present. Right. So you're not just mm-hmm. a basket case at the wrong times. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's what I, what was interesting to me about this too, is you sort of like you open the ritual mm-hmm. and then you close it. And then you close it. And then you close it because I think that's the piece that that's the distinguishing thing right there is that you open this doorway, you create a portal and a space for people to to dump their stuff, to cry, mm-hmm. to grieve, and then you close it back down and say, okay, now that ritual piece is is complete for now, which mm-hmm. means you allow to go through your life because I think that's the piece people I think open the door and then they don't even have a framework to understand that they can close it. Mm-hmm. Right, like that it's an internal decision, like, okay, now I'm going to close it. But I've opened it for for business for a little while, mm-hmm. and we close it down. And I think that's a big piece because I think sometimes there does need to be a, a, a set and setting, it seems like, you know, for that space to for mm-hmm. people, people to get into it and to feel safe, but then to close it back down because if that's not there, I think that's part of the fear too, right, is that they're not, yeah. they're not even aware of the opening and closing mechanism. If it's, mm-hmm. if, if it's not there, they think it's just open. Mm-hmm. And it's always open, and I'm mm-hmm. never going to be able to stop. Mm-hmm. So it's different. Like I said, I think that's relevant in martial culture, right? In feudal times when people were fighting, it's like you're going to see some pretty horrific things on a battlefield. Mm-hmm. You're going to see people dismembered and, and blood and horrible, horrible things. And you probably can't process it right then and there. You're going to mm-hmm. have to wait and open that mm-hmm. door later. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing a lot of those guys probably didn't. Maybe some did, you know? And I mean, so what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Like in terms of giving yeah. co- context to that, like the opening and closing piece for, for sort of settling people's minds about this process. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's also an interesting thing because I just came out uh, this past weekend. I did my wilderness first responder recertification and emergency medicine culture is another subculture that um, is exposed to a lot of traumatic events. Yep. And must have um, clarity and efficacy of movement and decision making and action, but oftentimes can also tend 
away from being able to simultaneously hold compassion. Mm. You know, if we think also of our um, medical professionals in um, not in wilderness settings, in our hospitals, if we think of our ambulance staffers, if um, there are just so many places. Also, if you're oftentimes like in um, executive settings, you know, making choices because um, there's a velocity of an organization moving. Right. But if in those places we do not make space, or if you're a hospice worker, you know, yeah. or if you're a caretaker, yep. if we don't experience or if you're a social worker and if you're working with um, children in the um, like juvenile system or the foster care system, or if you're an activist, you know, a social justice activist or an environmental activist, you are squarely facing pain. Yep. All and, the time. Yeah, all the time. And <clears throat> that unless we create conscious openings and closings of the valves to really let it go then you get that emotional plaque build up and then all of a sudden you're objectifying individuals and it's like it's just another body you're just another case it's just another fight you know and then like ooh, uh-oh well you just opened up a whole thing in my psyche when you were saying that i think about this and i can say this Less so with women. I mean, I have lots of female friends who I love to death, but I'm just saying in my male friendships uh, mm -hmm. throughout my life, I've seen that to be very true. I would say guys that I know, friends of mine who have, uh, let's just say emotional baggage about maybe about their parents, you know, about maybe not feeling loved mm -hmm. or not being cared for enough to, appropriately yeah. or, or whatever their thing is. Mm -hmm. um, and then how that relates to sexual connection with women where there's sort of a there's sort of a distant you know I mean no judgment right <clears throat> casual sex is casual sex people can do whatever they want but there comes a mm -hmm. point where it's just a perpetual pattern where it's just everything every connection they have is just sort of a, another another sexual connection with a woman that is that doesn't have necessarily a lot of depth there's not a lot of potential for even love mm -hmm. it's just going through the motions of the physical act with mm -hmm. very little understanding or depth about the other person you know uh -huh. there's just kind of a superficial like i'm getting laid you know and uh -huh. that's that's about where it begins and ends and it's fun it's great uh -huh. oh that was exciting and then and then there's just kind of this lull it's like they're on autopilot almost where uh -huh. it's like how many how many partners do you have to go through before you actually start attempting to dive in uh -huh. like i'm like is every single one just they can't all be you know, off or wrong or, or not for you. I'm like, so what, you know, where's mm -hmm. the disconnect? But you start to see this, right? It's like, it's like that same thing. It's just another person. It's just another body. It's just another. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've experienced that in the medical context. Yeah. Do doctors bullying, you know, uh, patients, you know, where they're just like, you do this procedure because it's, you, you know, it's just, uh, and it's like, whoa, whoa, slow down. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you have no idea what, what these parents have been through prior to this. You know, right. you, not, you know, nothing about them. And, yeah. there, and there's that piece that I think we all have to be really careful of because, well, and that's the, that's the opposite. It seems like that, you know, if you process your grief or you process your emotions, there is this, 
um, sensitivity and aliveness and robust energy that comes from the processing of it. And if mm-hmm. you don't do it, it's just the opposite. It seems like you start to become mm-hmm. calloused and numb mm-hmm. and just shut down. I mean, I've, I've heard those, I've seen those interviews with uh, the mm-hmm. factory farming slaughterhouse workers. They said they were just mortified for the first few months of their work. And they said, but if you want to keep your paycheck and keep a job, you just have to shut down. You just got to shut down and just do that and not think that it's mm-hmm. awful. You know, like they have to, you got to compartmentalize the emotions. And then, and then, then it's just the opposite, right? Yeah. And then there are consequences. Yeah. There's going to yeah. be real consequences inside yeah. and out. right? Totally. So there are a bunch of threads <clears throat> that I'm like, <clears throat> one, I love that you're bringing up, you know, twice now there's been the, the connection made mm-hmm. between grief and sexual energy in our sexual life. Yeah. And as you and I have talked in other circumstances, yeah. part of my um, training and passion and part of my offerings are around sex relationship and intimacy coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there is a very real connection between grief and intimacy mm-hmm. in our ecosystem. Um, so part of what you're describing, if we, you know, want to locate this in the body. So, um, if our, there's the association between our kidneys, our water element, our sexual energy, our jing, um, it is, it's amazing to me, um, that we can endeavor to be highly creative, highly alive beings and not consciously, Um, tend and cultivate our sexual energy Mm -hmm. and that none of our centers or energies can in my my hypothesis (laughs) um, none of these energies can be in their full expression if they exist in isolation from all the other elements in our internal ecosystem yeah agreed so that we cannot experience great creative expression if it's divorced from our sexual aliveness. We cannot experience um, great um, like bigness of heart and passion if we don't allow ourselves to grieve. These things can't thrive if we don't have clear boundaries in our life or if we don't honor the brightness of our yes, you know, if we don't know what is nourishing. Mm-hmm. And um, the dynamics you're describing particularly around, and this also relates to a a theme that's been coming up, is around um, uh, men and grief. Yeah. Because we have great permission in this culture um, for female-bodied individuals um, to to grieve. So if you look at, like, the patterning on playgrounds, um, when a little girl falls over, um, oftentimes the messaging she can receive is, um, you know, like, oh, like, you know, what happened? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. And there's permission to feel, to have mm-hmm. the feeling arc. And then it's like, okay, and, you know, go on. Um, and I'm just going to speak in, like, gender binaries also yeah. in this moment. Yeah. Um, recognizing that there is much greater complexity to the gender spectrum uh, and that our culture is 
just beginning to understand <laughs> the incredible traps we have <laughs> around the stories we tell around the bodies we're in mm -hmm. and what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do based on um, the gender we identify with and the bodies we're born into, which are also two different things. So that said, going back to what what is culturally allowed. So a little boy on the playground, you fall over like, get up champ, like you can tough through it. And there is value, I think, for all human beings to have an active um, permission with their, with their emotions and then also to develop the skills to know um, <clears throat> what does it look like when there's like overindulgence of an emotion yeah when does it become a tidal wave right. and where is this this like middle path between um getting swept away in a tidal wave and like not really having any rooted or boundaried relationship to our emotions and really letting our emotions have us and at the other end of um an extreme spectrum what happens when we don't allow them at all? And so yeah. instead to cultivate really a more conscious relationship with our emotions, and then the way that that can translate into our sexual lives is there's a ton of permission for women to inhabit their hearts. Yeah. And a ton of stigma for women to inhabit their sexual energy. Very true. And then it's a binary flip. Mm -hmm. where there's a ton of permission and encouragement and pressure for men to inhabit their sexual energy and a ton of stigma and um, shaming if for men to inhabit their hearts in certain ways. Right. And all of us, regardless of the bodies we're in, um, what does it look like when we get to be fully integrated beings? What does it look like when we don't shame any part? And that oftentimes I find some of the um, like energetic constellation and kind of style around the peak performance. I think the peak performance uh, like culture, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm very interested in a lot of aspects of peak performance. Yeah, the peak too. performance culture and also like the executive, high-performing like executive culture can both appeal to these super young, um, brain-oriented uh, individuals where there's, where is the commonality of just profound shaming of the yin. <laughs> yep. And where it's like, you don't wanna rest, you don't wanna take care of yourself, you're not valued for your emotions, like grieving is weak, Taking time off means you're lazy. Uh, you, oh, know? It's, like it's... you don't want to be sensual. You don't want to be artistic. And it's just like, um, it's just a continued uh, it's a reinforcement. Shit show. <laughs> it's a total shit same. show. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so then, so then <clears throat> it's like, oh, well, then we're just going to see the same patterns happen because what we resist is actually often our greatest teacher. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, guess what? look, there's a teacher. <laughs> and so it's like, Take it, do we yeah. want to try and burn the boulder? Do we want to try and hammer the boulder into bits? Do we want to put the boulder in a cage? And it's yeah. like, there is still there, not going anywhere. And Absolutely. actually it, um, 
And so one of the things that I have said before in my work is that which we desire most deeply and that which we fear most deeply are the signposts to our becoming. Ooh, I like that. Accurate too. Yeah. Right. The stuff we don't want to look at. Right. Right. <laughs> the stuff and that we're like, like, no, it's like, no, no. That's, those are literally the doorways. Like neon arrows pointing to the gold mine. Yeah. No. Um, well, well said. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I'm curious about this. You know, yeah. I've, I've had so some people I've seen um, various friends throughout my life. You know, yeah. I, I don't have any siblings. So I was blessed, you know, karmically with just a lot of amazing friends. Like I have a lot of amazing friends. I make friends very easily. But I, sure I but, but I, yeah, <laughs> I guess I do. <laughs> but then I'm able to keep people, you know, that when I have a, when I get them, you know, when I, when I have an emotional res resonance with them or a humor resonance, I can just like, I'm like, yep, I got you. We're, we're together. We're going to be hanging out for the rest of time. Yeah. But I've seen, you know, through the spectrum of my friendships, I've seen a lot of guys who, um, you know, kind of like what we're saying, they go through a depressed stage, right? There's yeah. a lot of unresolved grief in their life about something, right? Parenting, mm -hmm. childhood, you know, um, environment, whatever. They have their grief and then they'll go through these bouts of very real depression and sadness where they're crying yeah. and they're sad and they're whatever. And um, they they don't really bounce back. There is So for you and I, like we're talking about that um, thing. I, and maybe because it was, we were like, you know, hit on the jaw early on and you're like, Wow. Like, okay, I was hit yeah. hard, therefore I know I got hit and I kind of had to deal with it differently. But it's like for some of these, some of my friends, when I've seen them, they will go through these periods of depression sometimes for weeks on end and they sort of slowly come out of the stupor. But when they come out of the stupor, there isn't that resilient bounce back. They've just kind of, they're yeah. kind of, they're back to status quo, right? There's like yeah. a low, but there isn't like a peak or a spike back up that aliveness, you know, there isn't that where they get to like, and then come back down to a, to an equilibrium. And I'm wondering, have you seen that type mm. of thing in people? And if that's happening, what's missing in the grief dynamic or process for them mm. to not feel that? Because for me, that's the trade-off. That's, yeah. so, that's sort of the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of my ritual for my dad. Every part of why I don't want to miss it is for how amazing I feel the day after. Yeah. I'm like, oh, finally, I got to hit the reset button again. Like, you know, that's my yeah. that's my reset. So if that wasn't there, mm. that prospect would be considerably more. Yeah, it'd be very different. I'm not sure yeah. I, would, I would feel the same way. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, um, it brings up so much <laughs> uh, around um, the concept of alchemy. Um, because if we exist in a an orientation where we believe <clears throat> certain things are good and certain things are bad and then we experience something that's bad and then it's hard and then we're in a like survival to get through it or we're at a place that it's really no longer avoidable because it's gone from a whisper to a scream to an air gun to a like 24-hour siren that's blaring in our face and really like preventing the flow of our life then mm -hmm. it's like okay I, now I can't yeah. Now, like, I have to take you off the avoidance shelf. Right. Because, right. Because uh, I thought I could get away with avoiding you before, and now, like, I can't. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like when, and, and I also want to, to share that, you know, my healing process from my near fatal accident 
was long for so long. Uh, you know, in the seven, eight year window. Yeah. And and when I like share my story with people, I usually get a like I get pity or like revulsion or just this <laughs> relief of like, oh my God, thank God I didn't I haven't had to do that. Right. And that there were long periods of time where like I just wanted to be saved. Mm. Where I was like, can flick something like this is right. I think I I don't know if I can take any more of this. I wanted to be saved from my life and from my existence and from my pain. And we are constantly shown that story. And that's like highlighted in all of the um, popular media and storytelling we receive about going through challenge. Yeah. In a lot of, and this is a broad generalization. And so like, sure. Critical thinking listeners, I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm with you that that's not all that we're told. But yeah. we can often receive that patterning. Right. And so I, um, so to make this personal, so in my experience, um, I really started to have to look at my inner victim, which is like one of the forms that my ego can take because engaging our grief, going into the underworld of our beings. It's a doorway to look at all the parts we don't like. Yeah. And so it creates the opportunity to see why don't we like those parts? What do we get away with in life when we don't have to take ownership for certain behaviors or certain worldviews because right. there's a payoff to shutting down your heart. There's a payoff to inhabiting a victim mindset. Oh, yeah. There's a payoff to being profoundly stubborn. There's a payoff to the um, like immovable facade of, of like stone-like strength. Yep. Humans are very, very smart. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> we, I can do these things for reasons. Yeah. And, and that I um, am ultimately grateful for the opportunity yeah. to have looked at all these, right. like, these um, compensating architectures I made in my inner being. And I still, I am not done. I am profoundly in process. I am incredibly human along uh -huh. with you. I yeah. look at I get humbled so <clears throat> much and, and I'm grateful for it and I love myself along the way and sometimes sure. just fucking eat it on my face <laughs> and then cry about it and get up and keep going. Yeah, but it's yeah. the honest engagement of those parts rather than the mere, like, I just want to get through this because mm -hmm. when I just want to get through this, we're still really in a rejection posture. Mm. And alchemy is a transmutation of a base substance into an exalted substance. Mm. And rejection creates a stasis mm. of, of state. So it's like, oh, I'm experiencing grief. I'm experiencing grief. The grief valve is on. Okay, I'm in pain. Oh, oh, ah, oh, God, maybe it's done. Maybe I'm not going to feel it as long. And then, like, it's off. And then it's like, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Like, I'm done with that. And now I get to have a happy life. Right. Like, if that's how we're coming <clears> out on <throat> the other side, mm -hmm. instead of, God, I'm so thankful for rain. 
right. I'm so thankful for being alive. I'm so like, wow, I used to be so impatient and I used to move so quickly and I used to consume experiences and people and moments and places like this voracious, hungry ghost because I didn't want to be with this other part of myself. Like if we don't get that and also if we become enamored with the grief process, like I, I used to, um, I really deeply accessed spirit and connection to spirit through my dad's death. And like after a couple years, I, there was, I saw this way that I was relating to my grief as a doorway to get to, um, this different type of consciousness. Mm. And that started to dry up. And I was like, Oh, that's not what this is for. (laughs) Right. You know? Right. And so I think those are some, it's like what we're asking from our grief or what we're not asking from it. And if we use it to get towards greater understanding and a, a larger perspective of a widening of the aperture and, and more acceptance of self and other and life um, and more value for our wholeness than that, then we have just gone through the act of filling the cracks with gold instead and making yeah. like a bigger piece of art instead of just like, Oh, I got some glue and I just like, you know, no more yeah. crack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just put it together. Yeah. Oh, Oh, and one more thing. Uh, <laughs> and I'm about this because when I have these moments when I'm crying where, and I am very curious to hear your experience of this. Um, sensation is sensation. And when se- sensation gets loud and intense, it can, it's like, where do we get the valence that it's pleasurable versus painful? Mm-hmm. And really what is the difference between like grief and ecstasy? Because I have these moments where I'll start grieving, you know, in my mm-hmm. like, my like plains, North American plains thunderstorms that I can see rolling towards me <laughs> for yeah, miles. Right. And it's just like, doo, doo. and like the thunder beings arrive <laughs> and, and the waters open up. And I start not only feeling all the threads of grieving for my ancestors and for the way we're eating and that which has been eroded and also simultaneously being madly in love with life and the yep. creation and dewdrops and yeah, yep. jazz and, uh, you know, and like chai, it just all starts <laughs> kind of mixing together at, into a way that it's less two sides of a coin. And I experience it more as like this, woven fabric yep because i'm i'm not like they definitely are different states in certain regards but also when we do that forcing apart yep and the the the, like rejecting um we exaggerate the illusion of disconnection yeah 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 no i agree and i would say that it's so a couple things come to mind when you're saying that. So, you know, it is a continuum, right? Like ecstasy and like grief, you were saying, right? Yeah. Those two things. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when I when I think about this kind of stuff, I always try to think that, um, you know, pleasure, pain, right, <laughs> grief, mm-hmm. ecstasy, they are a continuum, but it's more like a color scale, right? Totally, they, the gradient. Yeah, the gradient. They just shade, and it's somewhere along the way. Yes, it's different if you look mm-hmm. over at that one side of it, but if you look back over the other side, it's different. But you realize that it's a slow right. fade, right? As you as you go through that. Chinese medicine says the same thing. You know, this is part mm-hmm. of what I love about their threads because, yes, it can be people are like, oh, that's just poetic philosophy. And it's like, yeah, yes, it is. And <laughs> yes. And if you actually consider that, consider what what's being said here, it's fully functional. And yeah. it's and it's a testament to to this this dynamic. I mean, if we look at the fire water axis right? In, yeah. in Chinese medicine. So for people who don't know, Chinese medicine has this very real axis. They talk about fire and water, which means the, the energy of the heart up above and the water in the kidneys below. This water and fire are, are two things, right? Two, two energies that are separate, two oppositional elements, one that technically extinguishes the other. It, they're fully dependent upon whether, one another for all, like it's a huge axis in the body for physiological connection. Which means the water, right? The, um, you know, and technically in Chinese medicine, it's fear and joy, right? That's like, uh-huh. th- those are like the two, happiness and, and fear, right? Total terror. Well, what if you do it as like fear and anxiety <laughs> right. and joy? Because you just did totally. um, acquired nature, original nature. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Right, we could go, we could spit out. But yeah, in the broad yeah. sense, right? You know, this, yeah. This, yeah. this water energy, it's like below, you know, is supposed to, the heat from the heart, right? The emotion, the joy of life, the the love of life. That heat is supposed to like push down slowly. It disperses out, but it should go down and steam the water below, mm-hmm. which means that as that steams, that water that can be fearful and can be all these things starts to mist up and it cools that fire too, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got this interplay where, and what these mechanisms point to are saying, okay, yes, you have fire above and water below. They need each other. And yes, one can put one out, but in the end, like they harmonize, they balance. And I think that's the same mechanism when we look at this kind of stuff. There has to be this understanding that, you know, the, the grief or the pain or the things that we go through are are ultimately harmonizing something else, even if you don't understand it, right? Because yeah. it's, it's different. I think it's different for everybody. It's not just always out of the textbook, you know, in Chinese medicine. It's like yeah, they can have one emotion happening here that should, by the book, happen, should have an effect somewhere else. And it doesn't. It has something else. For me, you know that connection that you that you talked about, right? The grief and the sex piece, mm-hmm. that that floored me. I mean, that to this day, I thought, and it's been a mechanism that's been true in my life. If my sex drive goes down, or I'm like I'm not as interested, or I'm not um, enjoying it as much, I know mm-hmm. definitively. I'm like, oh, I've I haven't cried. I, there's some shit in my life I haven't really probably dealt with, and mm-hmm. if I allow myself. And typically I do like to do it alone. It's not because if I see, you know, if my mm-hmm. wife sees me cry that like she thinks less of me, mm-hmm. uh, if anything, she would like to see me cry more. But, but for me, mm-hmm. I'm like, I like to go be alone, go do my mm-hmm. thing and mm-hmm. just not have any eyes on me, not be observed. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. once I get it out, usually things are right back online, you know, yeah. and it's true with other emotions too. There's other things that kind of have an oppositional one, but that one was definitive and it was clear. Yeah. And that's the harmonizing, right? Is that you yeah. get to, um, yeah, the grief. I mean, I think the grief is the destruction, right? Because typically a lot of grief is it's a mini death or it's a real death. Mm-hmm. You lose someone and it's the extinguishing of life in some way. Something goes away. Um, like I said, even if it's metaphoric, but if it goes away, once it goes away, 
there is this counterbalance of, well, the opposite of that is creation of life, you know, which, mm-hmm. and at the epicenter of sex, that's a real mechanism, you know, that's how people are made. Right. So right. I think that those pieces just always kind of run through my, my psyche yeah. when I'm thinking about this stuff, you know, that gradation, right? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a slow tilt uh, through it, but yeah, it's just not looked at that like that. You know, oftentimes totally. people are just like, well, it's like you said, that's, that's sadness, that's grief, that's weakness. And, you know, and this is the fucked up part, Larissa, that I, I, I see sometimes and I, <laughs> and, I, and I feel for guys because I'm like, you know, yes, it's like I think guys should we, – we have to come to grips that, that strong men cry and that, that it's actually incredibly healthy for men to like process mm-hmm. their stuff. And mm-hmm. then I've seen, you know, with the, with the movement of um, trying to, I guess, redefine masculinity in a way, men sometimes are shamed for not crying. You know, like, well, you're, right? you're you're just a alpha male sticking to the, you know, to this old patriarchal system, and you're just a you're just a garbage piece of shit, aggressive alpha <laughs> fuckstick, you know. And I'm like, Jesus Christ! I'm like, okay, if this is the if this is true that men like don't know as well how to cry, do you think shaming them into saying that they're bad for not yeah. crying? And that's where men yeah. I've seen men who are like sensitive guys who actually would. Like, or like, I kind of would like to explore this crying thing, but I just feel like I'm being shamed for it. Yeah. So I think it's just all this stuff is an evolution, right? I mean, it's like learning curves totally. for, for everybody. That's right. But in the end, I, yeah. I want to jump in there because yeah, that's, of course. I totally want to clarify that um, we all grieve differently. Yeah. And um, in a lot of ways, in many moments, I have the same impulse as you that I, I enjoy grieving alone. Like I particularly like grieving on the earth. Mm. There's like a unique experience of going and finding like big patch of like wild grass, (laughs) matting it down and sobbing into the earth, which is what I did after my dad died Mm -hmm. and what I've done many times since. And it's a place where I feel really held and really safe and and free to express and one of my growth pieces has been opening up more and more to let other people be witness to my crying yep and realizing how much gift that is to them yep and how much every time you know uh i had my own stigma overcoming that when i had my near fatal accident and i was you know, bedridden and then disabled for a really long time. I, I mean, I definitely lost friends. I had friends who just didn't want, like could not oh, yeah. uh, be with me in that state. <clears throat> Same thing with my dad's death because yep. um, it, when we don't know how to deal with different aspects of the human experience, which we either learn or don't learn from, yeah. from our cultural, familial, organizational settings, then, um, that like, oh God, I don't want to touch this right. aspect can come in, which then the transference of that like reaction can be like, oh, I'm like, I'm like a shameful piece of garbage. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, like I'm going to go be alone. Right, um, right. And that recognize it. And I also really learned through my dad's death, my mom and my brother and I all grieved very differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's really important to let everyone have their own experience of grief. And that's another thing I often say in grief rituals is um, 
we are here to witness each other's expression and the range of expressions that will be in this room, whether that is sitting quietly the whole time, whether that is speaking, whether that is sobbing uncontrollably, whether that's getting really angry, mm-hmm. um, whether it's laughing, yep. you know, our grief can move in different ways. Yep. And that we need to feel safe to be yeah. who we are, have the experience we have, not told, not be told it needs to look another way. Yep. Um, and that, that that's one of the benefits in the community practice is like, oh, it's not only am I going to allow the range of human um, forms of pain or suffering, I'm also going to allow the range of human expression. I'm also going to allow everyone to be on their own personal developmental process wherever they are. Right. And that, in so many ways, that is really what's being asked of us, I think, in society. Yeah. It's to stop telling each other, like, oh, you should be here and you should be doing that. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> we know where shaming gets us. <laughs> <clears throat> no kidding, because, I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, God, you could, you could apply that little dynamic mm-hmm. over to politics, over to, uh, I mean, interpersonal relationships, friendships, business dealings. That stuff happens everywhere, right? You should be this way. This is the right way. And if you're not seeing it this way, understanding it this way, you're garbage. Right. And that's actually, that's actually why, that's one of the reasons I chose my business name, which is Wayfinding. Yeah, it's a great name. Rather than, and I don't self-describe like externally as a Wayfinder. Yeah. Because... I don't have capital T, capital W, the way. Right. Like, I don't believe that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a way. I think you are the authority of how to best live and, in, and embody your highest being, you know, your fullest self. Right. Are there right. principles that can support aliveness? For sure. Mm-hmm. Do I know what that's supposed to look like in form? Nope. <laughs> you know that, that's <laughs> right. the that's the life journey. Right. That's the life. Journey. Well, that's the tapestry that makes it interesting. Is we get to you get to do it. Totally. I mean, I've had various teachers tell me this in various different ways, but they're you know the the long and the short of it is how you see it matters, and you finding your way yeah. within this spectrum as long as it's not you know, overtly hurting people mm-hmm. is really, you know, that's like a key point, but it, it's, yeah, finding your way is the way that's, you know, that's the, the piece that's always, that's, it's kind of that very Zen straight, but not straight, you know, the way is mm-hmm. your way, but it's all, it's also the way it's like, yeah. Oh God, thank you for being clear, <laughs> making this so much easier for all of us. Um, well, there was a piece I wanted to touch on with what you were saying too, and this was. Can I take a brief pause of and course. have you speak to the group? Yes, I, I, I will riff for a minute. <laughs> you awesome. go, go take care of your take care of your business. Yeah, awesome. yeah, I'll Thanks be I'll, so I'll, be, I'll be here for sure. I will be back momentarily. Yeah, yeah, take your time, no rush. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Well, you guys, so obviously there's a lot here with in talking with Larissa, and I think. I think the thing she's she's brought that she's got running through my head that I've thought about quite a bit is that 
people, I don't know, men and women both have their issues with grief. I've known women just as much as I've known men who don't want to grieve, who don't want to process their stuff. So I don't want to just put it on men. And that's not what Larissa is saying either. But I think we have to get to a point where we understand that what she said, what I, what she, what I really liked, what she said is that everyone does it a little differently. And this is true. Sometimes people will, will purge emotion and, and grief will come out in different ways. And that's the beautiful piece is that it doesn't have to look a specific way because I think that's where a lot of guys get hung up is that they don't want to cry. And maybe that's not what is necessarily or technically is good for them. And that's a legitimate piece to consider because I think a lot of times there's a knee-jerk reaction that if you're not crying, you're, you know, you're, you're missing out. And I, and I would say on some level that's probably true. We all need to cry. There are certain times. There's a there's a time under, you know, under the stars when we all need to cry for something. But crying is also not the end all and be all or the everything that needs to be covered. So interesting points. But Larissa, are you back with us now? I'm yes. Back. All right. Thank very you cool. So much. You bet. I I was just kind of <laughs> talking about you know to the people that were listening just that what yeah. you what you said I really liked, which is basically that you know grief. Um, can come out in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't have to come out a specific way, um, you know, laughing, crying, because I think a lot of guys get hung up there. You know, I know lots of men who are like, mm. well, I don't want to cry. Maybe, and, and that's that's a huge opening of a door to hear that, yeah, it can come a, a, come through in a different way. I did have a question for mm. you. Um, mm. And this was, so, you know, through a few times, I've had a few destabilizing uh, you know, grief blows in my life that really have mm-hmm. like, and I can think of three, you know, one was the death of my dad. One was a, was a breakup. We, you know, there's always, there's a breakup. Mm-hmm. I think the first time it happens, not everyone goes through it, but usually someone breaks our heart. You know, we get broken up with, and that first time it happens when you're really in love with somebody just tears you apart. And it was probably one of the best things that ever could happen to me. It made me way better, but that was one. Um, then my daughter being in the hospital, you know, those are like three, three deaths, right, um, that I can kind of think of that. And, you know, in my dad's death, at the time, you know, there were friends of mine who didn't reach out and connect to me. Mm-hmm. And and I would say that they were not equipped or they didn't mm-hmm. know what to say. And mm-hmm. at that age, I was pissed. I was like, I don't give a shit if you're you're <laughs> uncomfortable right now. You need mm-hmm. to buck up and say something to me, you know, and mm-hmm. they and they never did. And I, as I've gotten older, I'm realizing that's not because they didn't love me. That was because they right. weren't equipped. But I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a little bit of that, like, in there where I'm like, it still bothers me. You know, there's still a piece of like, come on, yeah. get it together. And then I think, uh, you know, and when I went through a breakup, that really heavy breakup in my 20s, it was like, there was an element where I called certain people and was like, look or left voicemails, like I'm mm-hmm. really struggling here and I'm really in some dire need of just someone to listen. You don't have to say anything, just listen to me. No call back, you know, no mm-hmm. no response back. So I think I can, I relate to you what mm-hmm. you said, like when someone, when you're in the middle of the quad in Stanford and like people are just looking at you and whether they know you or not, they're sort of turning a blind eye. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of process, because I mean, I would say I'm in much better space with that with that stuff now. But yeah. I'd be lying if I said there wasn't some residual gunk in there for me where I'm, you know, yeah. still kind of 
probably a little resentful and still a little pissed that like people didn't mm-hmm. didn't call me back or didn't reach out to me in those times. How do you how do you process that stuff? Yeah. This is a great this is like one piece I want to touch on in like the the territory of coming up with like yeah. how to be how do we care for ourselves and each other in in like the really big grief phases. Yep. Because it's one thing to do a grief ritual, and it's another thing to be in active mourning. Yeah. So how I dealt with that, because I, oh man, I definitely had resentment. And I too came to understand, um, because this is one of the consequences, living in a culture that um, avoids death, you know, we don't... We usually don't like raise or kill any of the plants or animals that we consume. So, which is, you know, how many people in an active way stay connected to the life death cycle in, in, um, if you're living a more land based life or you're living in a more like ecologically connected culture. Um, but, we have rejection of death in all these ways as this like something that's bad. Yeah. That's like the bad shameful box. Mm -hmm. And, and so then um, as a consequence, we don't know how to show up relationally. Yep. When someone else is experiencing grief or sadness or mourning or trauma. And this is one of our greatest opportunities right now because we have an incredible upwelling and transparency in our society about different um, species of trauma. And I say species based in that, like, there might be different origination actions, Mm -hmm. but how can we be with that, you know? And, um, And I think the simplest advice is, you know, what you just said is your urge for your longing of, like, I kind of don't care what you say. Yeah. I just want you to be with me. Yeah. That was all I wanted. And, yeah. Yeah. They could have been and, silent on the other end of the line and I would have been right. content. And there's yeah. a way that we need to develop like relational and emotional resilience around grief and relationships. Because when we don't act because we don't want to say or do the wrong thing, then, um, what we're risking is connection. And if we're trying to optimize for not making mistakes, like right. good, good luck being in relationship. <laughs> right. Like that is right. just yeah. a total effing nightmare. Yeah. And instead what we need to do is recognize, oh, I am going to say something that's going to disappoint you or piss you off yeah. or rub you the wrong way. And so then to orient towards action attunement and repair because we will disappoint each other i will say the wrong thing i remember a very like well-intentioned friend who um i my near fatal accident came after uh an annual ceremony that i do in the winter and she was like oh what'd you wish what'd you what was your intention in that ceremony kind of implying like did you ask for this or did you create this and and like my fiery internal slayer 
came out and was like, not now. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that, that like things can be worked through, Yeah. but you're not going to build the muscle if you don't go to the gym. Yeah. And, and it's like, you're not going to build the muscle in experiencing your own grief. If you don't go to the gym, you're not going to experience like build your muscle in being with other people's grief. If you don't go to the gym Yep. and whether they're a friend of yours or a family member of yours or a colleague of yours, you just have to find the relationships and start and try and say, and even if it's, how would you most like to be supported rather than me assuming what you need? Right. How you most like to be supported and then for you to ask. And if I can't give you what you need, I have to be responsible for holding my own boundary Yep. or if for whatever reason I don't want to. And I can suggest alternatives and some common things. There's like a, you know, there are general things. Um, if, in the case of losing, in the case of the death of a loved one, and if someone is in deep active mourning, here uh, are some things that are helpful. Cook food. Yeah. Do laundry. Mm-hmm. Do someone's dishes. Right. Because when you're in more active mourning, you don't give a shit. Oftentimes, can be a common pattern, you don't give a shit about the mundane. Nope. Meaning bleeds away (laughs) and there's just like a gaping abyss that can be there oftentimes. And, um, and to honor and to like, not again, to not expect the person to say or act a certain way. Maybe they want to have a break from being in that emotion all the time. Maybe they really need to talk about that. Um, you know, because again, there's the permission for the dynamism of experience instead of I'm going to project onto you what grief looks like, what you need, how you should be doing it and what I want can and can't give you. But instead, if we say like, you know, I'm here, or even if we say, I love you and I hear that need right now. And I can't fully show up in this way. And I'm sorry if that disappoints you. That's a hard thing to say. It is. But to be like, I'm, I'm having like my own, I feel overwhelmed and challenged in all these different ways in my life. And I actually don't feel like I have the energetic capacity to show up with the amount of presence and spaciousness that I truly want to give you. And so I'm, I'm going to have to say no in this moment. Yeah. You know, can we have the bravery to say those things? And and also oftentimes people are just like, oh, babe, but what were those words? And can I like write those words down? What I exactly do I say? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's the script? Right. But it's it's more communicating like I love you and I care for you. Here's what I'm able to give. And here's how I'm tending our relationship through this and that it's a conversation instead of like I'm experiencing grief you need to take care of me this way or you're experiencing grief I'm gonna respond to you this way it's like no 
relationship yeah. as it turns out is a dynamic ever unfolding <laughs> conversation oh my pay attention God. so so painfully true right on so many levels yeah well, and i can i can reflect just some of the couple of things you said you know the the mundane my dad died at 19 and i was 19 yep. i was 19 you know 19 at the, at the time freshman year in college and school is important you know and at the same time yep. i was like don't really give a shit like, yep. at all i was like yeah. I was like, the last thing on my list of shit right now is if I flunk a class, I could give a rat's ass. I re- and, it, and it was so liberating to, I mean, it was by design. I couldn't, there was not much I could do about it. But yeah. to not care, I thought, yeah. in the big scheme of life, this doesn't matter. It just doesn't. So, yep. um, you know, I was, ne- I ne- I've never thrived in academia. I'm way more artistic and intuitive and mm. like structured academia is very difficult for me, to, truth be told, even though I was in school from five to 32. I don't know what I was thinking, but <laughs> but like, it's difficult for me, you know? And I remember, yeah. I remember getting to college and was like, yep, it's just not. And it kind of left a mark too. You know, I think like I always had a little bit of st- struggle with like structured academia authority and whatnot. But it even got even more ingrained at that, given that timing, just like when yeah. that metronome hit in my life. And then the other piece that, um, so yeah, I didn't care. And I was focused on other things. I was focused on me, basically, what I was going through and what I was doing. And then the other piece, um, you were saying, you know, if you don't go to the gym, right, you don't go to the grief gym, you don't work that muscle and learn how to relate to people, you're, um, there's a sacrifice in connection, right? Like the connection, it made me think about this. You know, the people that showed up for me in those uh-huh. times that that did show up for one, my friendships now, fast forwarding this many years later, are the people that have tremendous weight in my life. Uh-huh. And sometimes it was new terrain for them. Um, sometimes it wasn't. I just kind of knew I was like, that person's always going to be there for me. But uh-huh. the people that when my dad died, the people that stepped in and were willing to talk to me and create space, even if they didn't do it well. Yeah, I've gotten closer with them and the people that didn't show up, those relationships have faded some. They've, they've like, and it's not like you're wrong and you're, you're bad for not showing up for me, but it's just interesting to note how things unfold. That just the, the observation yeah. of what is. The people mm-hmm. that didn't show up, it's like um, the integrity of the connection started to dissolve. I thought, if you can't be here with me right now when I really do just need you to listen, you don't have to say anything, but just be in the same space, even from a distance over the phone. If you can't do that for me, I'm not sure this is going to like, we're not going to evolve together because there's just, there's literally no connection. There's nothing being had. And that's been true, you know, and then with the breakup, same thing, the people that showed up that were willing to process with me. I mean, God, they become some of my best friends and I met them at 27. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's like mm-hmm. that's like a little bit later. You know, you're, this isn't like childhood friends. This is like me, kind of as an adult man, finding like these amazing friendships for people that were like, "Yeah, I'll ride the wave with mm-hmm. you, even mm-hmm. if it's not pretty, and even if it's not, you know, uh, even if it's really ugly, I'll 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 kind yeah. of I'll 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 bear the tides with you." And um, and I'm just mm-hmm. amazed to see the people that are willing to be emotionally vulnerable, essentially. Mm-hmm. My quality of friendships are way stronger with those people. That w- if that emotional vulnerability about the hard knocks of life can't be there, it's very hard for me to like link up with somebody. Hard for me mm-hmm. to, to get there because for me, I want the superficial, idiotic, dick and fart jokes with my friends. Absolutely, <laughs> like it's so important. Like I gotta have those. <laughs> and I'm like, and we also need to go into the bowels of hell. Like from when you know, like when I'm struggling and yeah. you're struggling. 
we need to go to those places too because I can't enjoy those superficial moments if I'm not able to have the deep, gnarly places too. You know, there's there's this, uh-huh. it goes back to that gradation thing, right? It's uh-huh. a spectrum of like we need these things, but it's it's such a fascinating topic. You know, it's such a cool. Yeah. There's so much yeah. here to to go through. Well, Larissa, yeah. with if if we were to leave our mm-hmm. our people here with kind of like parting parting thoughts, parting ideas, um, yeah. as we close out, what would you say, you know, someone's coming into this and they're like, okay, I've listened to this whole podcast and there's a lot <laughs> of crazy directions it's gone about grief and, you know, emotions and why it's relevant for our culture, how you're doing mm-hmm. it in business, which is amazing. If people were, let's just say for the, the emotionally non-intelligent and they're like, okay, I know I need to like incorporate this into my life on some level and they, and they have the drive, but they're just clueless. What would you yeah. say is like the, the baseline place that the regular average person should start in terms of, you know, getting these ideas moving in their life yeah. in real time that's that's applicable and could help them? Yeah. Um, a couple of questions that I would offer for consideration on that path are um, what has been my relationship to feeling, to feeling discomfort, to feeling sadness, to date. What do I believe about myself and how I'm supposed to relate to these feelings? What are the main experiences in my life that have asked me to look or ask me to um, encounter these feelings and how have I dealt with them? In what ways did those choices serve and in what ways did those choices potentially obstruct my fullness of being? Good questions. What am I... um, What do I most long for in the full expression of my being? And how might feeling more uncomfortable aspects of myself help me get there? Yeah. Because... Big questions. Yeah, because even... It's an interesting thing that those questions can take us into reflection, but ultimately they're stepping stones to get us into the realm of feeling Mm -hmm. and and ultimately how can these feelings be teachers for me yeah how can these feelings be teachers for me and and another another one going back to that like what do i believe about myself or what are the stories i tell about yeah these feelings to look at what's false about those stories because we can often have um, false beliefs preventing us from feeling. So we, uh, we uh, can center more of our energy circulation up in the mental realm as a yeah. defense mechanism to feeling down into our somatic experience and our emotional experience. And, um, And maybe even like the very, 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 very first question is what happens in my body when I think about grief? 
as a, a first handhold? That's a good question because I think it what makes it uh, embodied. It make it makes it physical, where it's no right. longer because I think that's a big piece, right? Emotions. I've, I've had this thread with many people. Emotions are these immaterial things that where are they? Like where the fuck is right. an emotion? Like where is it? Right. But yeah. when you start to like locate like a feeling in the body, it's like okay. This thing that has yeah. no material at least has a location. <laughs> yeah, it has a. It's yeah. a place to start in in our physical form, mm-hmm. and that's really good. That just that last little bit you said though, um, the de- the defense mechanism, right? The overactive mind that will defend mm-hmm. against, you know, w- what I call the feeling heart. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen that so many times, right? People that are just perpetually, never-endingly sarcastic and joking, and you know, stuck mm-hmm. in every external world event, but they can't for a second, you know, just an emotional, mm-hmm. you know, like crippled almost emotionally where they can't mm-hmm. even go down for a second and touch yeah. something that makes them feel yeah, yeah. sad, sad or, yeah. you know, or grief or any of those things. It's great. Yeah. Those are great questions. I'm going to give just a couple more in that yeah. very first somatic question yeah. because it's, it is very simple and it's also, um, also to not, you know, yay, if you're excited about asking these questions, because we all got to start somewhere. Yeah, it's very um, true. And, and um, you know, as much as I felt as a child, I realized all these ways that I had hardened prior to my dad dying. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, <clears throat> this like massive explosion and opening of the gates. And I didn't know. So, so in terms of opening up, slowly opening up and if you don't have a precipitating event taking you there (laughs) where do I feel it in my body how does it make me feel what does it feel like and to ask yourself to be very specific in describing that feeling if it's if it's like it feels bad okay okay well that is a subjective descriptor yeah Um, to try to get towards I feel it in I feel it in my upper chest so locate it physically in your body mm-hmm. and then quality um it feels like tightness it feels like clenching it feels like heavy wet snow mm. it feels like the bottom of a swamp the more specific we can get in describing it the more we're letting the feeling like breathe to life. Yeah. And after you get through being very, very specific and it might have a color, it might be like, Oh, it feels, it feels like ripped cloth. Yeah. You know, um, once we get to that level of description to then as you tune into the feeling to ask, like, what is this? What can I learn from this feeling? Right. You know, and um, what is, if we're to personify it, like, what does it want me to know? Right. If it were personality, what does it have to say? Right. Because it's information and information wants to transmit into our awareness. But when we're not activated in our sensing muscle, then the information gets locked. And all, all all that's required to unlock information is listening. Yep. So true. <laughs> Listening and curiosity. So. Yes. We're it's just... a pretty simple key. <laughs> yeah. Right. A winning formula of sorts. Yeah. Well, Larissa, um, 
if people want to find you, uh, you know, on social media or you have, you have <clears throat> any kind of like website or things that we can like refer people to that if they want to kind of track you and see what you're doing, where should yeah. they, where should they go? If you want to learn more about my business, you can go to www.wayfinding.io. Um, I also share thoughts occasionally along with photos on Instagram under the handle LB Conte. Uh, and those are, those are two great initial places. And I also um, publish articles on Medium. If you look up Larissa Conte, last name spelled C-O-N-T-E. Beautiful. Well, Larissa, thank you. Thank you for all of the, for the work you're doing for one, uh, the culture, mm. the culture needs it. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for just sharing, you know, the knowledge and, and opening up this stuff and these doorways, I think, because a lot of people, we need it and, and we're not particularly good at it all the time. So it's a, it's relevant, yeah. relevant stuff to know. So thank you. Yeah. Can I add two resources and sure. also two honorings of teachers? So of course. a lot of my experience in learning about grief was opened up through my own life. But then as I learned both through reading and through experiential learning, um, two very valuable um, sources of wisdom around grief helped guide me. One was a teacher um, by the name of Sobonfu Somme, that's S-O-B-O-N-F-U, S-O-M-E. She has incredible <clears throat> writing and experiences on grief. Um, and I am so grateful for all I learned from her about grief rituals and the importance of grief in the health of a community. Uh, cool. Similarly, a great, um, another great uh, teacher and writer on grief is Martine Practel, has a book entitled The Smell of Rain on Dust. Ooh, great name. Oh, it's so, um, and he writes about the relationship between grief and praise, how they're mm. inseparable necessary elements for our aliveness. How do you spell the last Beautiful. name? Um, Martine's full name is spelled M-A-R-T-I-N, last name, P-R-E-C-H-T-E-L. Perfect. Yeah. Those sound like great books. Yeah, both very, very wise individuals. Um, I'm so grateful for them passing on their cultural experiences and understanding from the Dagra people of Burkina Faso and the Tsutujil Mayan people um, because we're, we have the opportunity to uh, engage in culture repair. And weave, weave habits that once existed that, uh, you know, haven't existed for a little bit. They fall by the wayside, that's for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gray. It's been a joy talking to you. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm so grateful for the conversations you're hosting and the work you're doing in your life and for your, all of the stories you shared um, about your relationship with grief. Yeah, because yeah. every time anyone hears um, about the possibility of navigating grief and the really just the like tremendous gifts that come from it, it shows possibility that is true for them too. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. You're you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. Thanks a lot, Larissa. Um, we'll probably have you back on at some point. So thanks. For, <laughs> thanks for being here though. <laughs> All right. You just let me know. Okay. Have a good day. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. -bye.